I'm Lisa Bryant. I'm Leanne Gibbs. And I'm Liam McNicholas. And this is the Early Education Show. A fortnightly look at the policy, politics and practice of Australia's early education sector. Early education is currently enjoying a higher political profile than usual. The first COVID-19 lockdown back in March and April saw the government investing in free early education, but only temporarily. The federal opposition has made funding changes to early education the centrepiece of this year's budget in reply. Community calls for greater access to more affordable early education are increasing. Amidst all that, a new advocacy project is trying to promote more and smarter investment in early childhood outcomes. We've seen lots of different advocacy campaigns in the sector. Can Thrive by Five change Australia's early education sector? Here to talk about Thrive by Five and early education policy in Australia more generally is the initiative's CEO, Jay Weatherall. Jay, welcome to the Early Education Show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Um, so, Jay, you might be the busiest person in early education at the moment. I know you. It, 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 hardly a week goes by without you doing a, a webinar or some event after hours. So we should say, firstly, we're really grateful to you for speaking uh, to us, adding to your, your list of events at the moment. Oh, look, it's a great pleasure. This is uh, personal passion and uh, it's lovely just to have one thing to focus on rather than, a, than lots of things to focus on. That's true, yes. Um, before we get into Thrive by 5J, which I think we we're going to spend a bit of time talking about tonight, mm. um, there may be a lot of listeners out there who know you from your probably biggest uh, role prior to this, which was as the former Premier of South Australia. And particularly during your time there, um, I know that early education uh, was something that you sort of uh, brought in as a bit of a focus to South Australia, but particularly for listeners in the sector out there who are familiar with the, the principles and practices and theories of Reggio Emilia, you actually brought in um, one of the great uh, thinkers from that from that area, Carla Rinaldi, as I, th- I think it was the first thinker in residence. Was, was that right in South Australia? No, it was actually, it was one of the thinkers in residence, but um, it, it was the the second in the early childhood space. We had one earlier in 2008, um, uh, a professor, Fraser Mustard, uh, from Canada who came over. And so that was the first um, big international influence, I suppose, on my thinking. And then Carla Rinaldi a little later. But they, And they both came at the issue from quite different perspectives but arrived at the same conclusion. So they're massive influences on my thinking in this area. Are you able to talk a bit about, um, I guess, how, how that did, uh, that influenced yeah. your, your thinking? Because I know, I, I don't know whether there's a direct direct connection here, but when, when you were the Premier of South Australia and a lot of the discussions were happening at COAG around early education funding, you were probably one of the strongest voices for, you know, better funding and, and more increased uh, focus on this area. Yeah, well... I, I... Oh, everything all happened at once. In 2004, I was given really portfolios relating to children, um, child protection, and then Aboriginal affairs, and then early childhood development, and then education. I really sort of stayed in those sort of portfolios for most of my my political career before I became uh, Premier. But it was at the same time, I also had my first child, and, uh, and then a couple of years later, a second child. And so... And that was the, about that time I got introduced to Fraser Mustard, who, who told us about the way in which a child's brain develops in those first three to, to five years and how profound those early experiences are for the whole trajectory in terms of learning and 
and healthy development. And so it was really, it was such a miraculous story. And I think anybody that's heard the experience-based brain development story, once you've heard it, you can't unhear it, like it's, because it's such a powerful idea. And it's really motivated me ever since, I think, in terms of public policy. Because for me, it um, obviously it's critical in the way in which you bring up your own children, but it's also, it, it's also the big answer to all the questions that, that uh, faces. So if you're worried about disadvantage, then the early years are a massive issue. If you're concerned about um, educational attainment, then the early years are critically important. And and if, you, if you're even concerned about the, the health trajectory, so all of these chronic diseases we concern ourselves with, um, so much of the trajectory is laid down in those first five years. So really, you know, it, for, for me, it, it's it's just the highest of uh, high priority. So it's... Um, uh, it is I for us to too. <laughs> yeah, well, as you say, it's pretty, once it gets in your veins, it's hard to get out, isn't it? I think um, absolutely, and, and we've all been involved in various ways for probably too many years. And I think there's something that um, Lisa and I are always, and, and I know Liam, is he always agrees with us, don't you, Liam? But um, <laughs> I think something that we have thought over the years is, yes, this is true, and it seems to be, that we hear over and over again this message, but the the ability to change and move that story along is a mm. difficult one. And I, I guess I'm interested in your perspective on why you think that has that is. Well, not every important idea um, gets to the top of the list of political priorities. I mean, you know, it's a crowded space. Climate change pandemics, recessions. I mean, there's there's a lot of people competing for attention. Uh, and they all they all think their issue is the most important question. You maybe and maybe some of them are right. But um, it 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 I think what hasn't happened in the past is that we haven't been able to galvanize uh, an effective campaign to put this at the top of a list of priorities. I mean the the sector itself is not strong enough by itself to win this argument. It's got a fantastic argument, always had an impeccable argument, but what it doesn't have is the political weight uh, on its own to be able to put pressure on the political process. And the truth is most most politics is not led. It, it comes from really what the community desires and wants. There are there are there are a few examples where political leaders go out well ahead of public opinion and then and then bring that along behind them, but almost usually it's it's pressure for change, objective circumstances building pressure for change that then causes politicians to act. And sometimes you have to crystallise that with a campaign. That's that's why. And we haven't had we haven't had a campaign of sufficient weight and focus that's been able to crystallise uh, behind these issues. Well, that's probably a good segue, Jay, to then talk about Thrive by Five. So um, the I imagine there's probably not too many, uh, particularly listeners of this of this uh, podcast, but people in the sector who haven't at least heard of Thrive by Five as a, as a sort of new project. But can you tell us a bit about, you know, where Thrive by Five's come from and I guess what its key, what its key aims are, what, what its key goals are? Well, I, mean, I suppose the starting point is this notion that, that the critical importance of the first five years and to create essentially a system that, that um, better supports children and families in those first five years. And we don't have a system. 
I mean, what we have at the moment is a series of subsystems which speak to one and uh, don't speak um, in an integrated way to one another, but in fact um, actually find it uh, hard to meet the needs of children and families. So that's the, the overarching goal. And the way in which we, we are seeking to, to prosecute that is to is to seek to bring together a very broad uh, sector. And if you think about the sector, it, it, it comprises of at least five subsystems. So there's infant and maternal nursing, there's childcare, there's uh, preschool, uh, there's child protection, and there's family and community services. And all of those um, systems uh, have their own workforce, their own funders, their own providers, their own regulators, their own unions in some cases. So getting that group to speak with one voice is itself a challenge. And then getting that group to build a coalition with others, because the sector itself isn't strong enough to cause change, is the next step. So it's a many voices, one message campaign. I think that's um, that's really interesting, Joe. I think you've hit on a, a, a few interesting things there, which is this idea that you know the early education sector, which is obviously the focus we're on, is part of this or sort of broader, you know, uh, young children, early childhood development um, space. I'm wondering. So we have, as I sort of said in my intro, we have seen quite a few campaigns uh, in the last little while, and a lot of them have sort of come from the sector or come from coalitions or groups within the sector. Um, are there things you think Thrive by Five? either can do differently because of the way it's been set up or there or are there specific strategies that you know you'll be looking at to to sort of make that change yeah i think i think there is i mean the first thing to say is it's not our campaign it's basically we're just facilitating all of the people that that actually know about this topic to actually create the change we want and our role is essentially to convene or resource because i, I come from a big foundation that's got a lot of resources so money counts uh, to being able to actually send these messages out there, but also to construct a, a campaign that actually is capable of winning. And and it's only going to win if it's a, we work on a broad front. Essentially, it works like this. Politicians don't act unless we create pressure for change. Pressure for change comes from building a broad coalition of interests who demand something and if it's not achieved then there's a political penalty basically people won't vote for them and so to to actually bring that that coalition together we have to craft a narrative that the people can see their themselves in it and we and it's a way of what we've done is we've tested some some narratives which we think uh, resonate and which we're out there prosecuting at the moment and the the critical and first one is about the way in which a child's brain develops, this this whole experience-based brain development story. People may think they understand how children develop, but when they actually hear, you know, this, this incredible story of, you know, million, million neural connections every second when a child is stimulated through, you know, play-based learning with their parents or in, in high-quality centres, uh, this, you know, that, and, and the effect that that has on their, their life trajectory it becomes very motivating for parents and the broader community. And people understand what this means for future well-being and prosperity. So that's the first argument. And that's the linchpin for everything. The second big argument is essentially a cost of living argument. 
One of the service systems that touches many families is childcare. This system um, is ferociously expensive, one of the most expensive in the world. So we can motivate young families by laying down the facts about that. 27% the average family income disappears in childcare costs. And this is punishing for many young families. And then the third argument, which really has a lot of power and force, is the way in which the childcare system does not meet the needs um, of women in particular. So it, it essentially discriminates against the second income earner, which is typically the woman in 90% of cases. Uh, and that in, is very deleterious for their career and their, their life opportunity and the broader economy. So those arguments together create a really compelling narrative. Now, it's not it's not the whole picture because ultimately, you know, we the, the service system that we want to build beneath that is a very complex public policy discussion. But those three arguments together, the way in which a child's brain develops and the critical importance of, of high quality early learning and, and obviously parenting, the affordable, accessible um, early learning experiences, and of course a system that, that doesn't discriminate against women, leads us to come up with a campaign goal, which is high quality, universally accessible early learning. And that is a winning argument. About two thirds of people believe in that. And it doesn't vary greatly depending on who you ask. Men, women, labor, liberal, young, old, it's roughly the same. So it is a winning argument if we can prosecute it. Oh, sorry, I muted and unmuted there. And I'm um, sorry, Lisa, I'm sure you wanna come in and say a number of things here too, but. I think that that argument has has been there and there have been agreements. I think what it comes down to is who's going to pay for it. Um, mm. And that, that is often the biggest challenge. And we've had wonderful changes in the early childhood landscape with the National Quality Framework and the standards which you would have, I'm sure, been a part of and right mm. behind. How do we solve this problem around who pays? Because you've rightly identified that we have one of the most um, significant private contributions to mm. a system. But we, and we all agree, it's almost like a, it is a public health issue. So yeah. what, well, who's going to actually pay for it? I think this is where we, we reach these barriers in the argument. Yeah. Well, I think the first thing, any strategic communications um, plan needs to start with the why. You know, what, what, what's the problem we're seeking to solve? When you do articulate, you know, this, this brain story and what that does to uh, the, you know, the way children develop and learn, uh, the, you know, the, the high costs that are already being borne by families and then, of course, the discrimination against women and their participation in the workforce, what that leads you to is a conclusion that the costs are already being borne. So... You know, the costs are already there. The costs of late intervention have been estimated at about $15.2 billion per annum, and that's conservative. Uh, the costs on, on young families, um, you know, the average couple of hundred dollars out-of-pocket expenses at a time in their lives when, when that's really hard there. And we know what, we also know the other costs of putting pressure on young families when they've got children comes out in developmental outcomes. And then, of course, the costs of the loss of uh, the productive uh, contribution 
of women in the workforce, which has been estimated by the Grattan Institute in the order of $27 billion per annum. And that's before you count, um, put a number on the healthy well-being and, and you know the healthy life experience of children, which is an, you know, an, an inestimable cost, which is enormous. So, so the you know the, the costs are already being borne uh, by uh, society and by individuals and by the economy. So when you when you set the equation up in that way, the modest investment that's necessary to actually create a universally accessible system looks really quite small in comparison with the benefits. And I think, you know, I think that there's 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 always a powerful political coalition in favour of um, high quality services. And I think we that the last campaign we saw that was successful in this area was the National Disability Insurance Scheme. The reason it was successful is that it that it actually sought to build a very broad coalition. So it was every Australian counts. You know, that was the that was the byline for the National Disability Insurance Scheme. And we have to create a similar platform if we're going to win this argument. We, we can't win an argument in this space just on the basis of disadvantage. We have to, paradoxically, the bolder plan of universality is actually easier to win because you, you're able to build a broader coalition in favour of change. So it's not easy, but this is a campaign goal which we are absolutely confident is winnable. And that... The cost equation can only be seen in the context of the benefits. Mm, yeah, I mean, that universality argument is definitely the big one, isn't it? Because yeah. that, that is what will we'll convince everybody. Absolutely. And you don't... The other thing is, when you lead with disadvantage... I know disadvantage is certainly why I got involved in politics, was to, to solve injustices. But the problem is, when you, when you use the language of disadvantage, when you message around disadvantage... People, it, it creates stereotypes in people's minds about who you're talking about and why they're disadvantaged and their willingness to, to actually help. Now, ironically here, the a lot of the value that's actually unlocked uh, and, and, and drives the economic argument for, for change here uh, actually is for, for, for women in particular on, on higher levels of educational attainment and therefore higher income. So, the, so there's a sort of a you know that there's that there's a nice coalition that can be built with with, with between families who you might be described as you know quite well off and also families who are more disadvantaged who that the universal system benefits both but in different ways Jane can I ask two kind of slightly more hard-hitting questions mm. sure Every time I hear you talk, and I've heard you talk a number of times now, you you convince me, right? You know, you convince me with the strength of your arguments, with your polit political nous, with your political persuasiveness. But I have this kind of thing happening in my head that says, how many people are going to be put off about this being run by a philanthropic, um, by Minderu, basically, mm, by a sure. philanthropic association with the background of Minderu. Yeah. So that's my first hard question. I'll give you both sure. of them and then you can respond. And the second one is what, what happens if you don't bring the early education and care sector along with you? 
you're, um, you know, you're coming from it as an outsider and what happens if people say it's just another campaign, we've had so many of these and, like, uh, Leanne and Liam and I often joke about the number of campaigns there's mm. been in us in the sector. What happened, you know, like what makes you think as an outsider that you'd do any better at it than what mm. the sector has tried to do? And I know, you know, you're an ex-politician, you've got contacts, etc. but getting this sector alone to agree to anything is impossible. Yeah. That like there's so many different arms, there's so many different, yeah. you know, things. If they can't agree on, you know, on basically anything, why mm. would they agree to back a campaign run by outsiders to the sector? Yeah, yeah so look, it's a great, great set of questions. Really the critical question you asked there is, you know, can we do this without early educators? The, 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 the short answer is no. Zero chance of success. For a whole range of reasons, but probably most critically, they're the the crucial conduit uh, between the um, uh, with the parents. So parents, you mentioned parents of children of that age, have got are so busy that they're hardly going to become uh, easy uh, advocates or easy um, recruits to a political campaign. Um, so the, the the source of persuasion. For this campaign is really from the trusted practitioner, the the, the educators. I and mean, if you've handed your child over to a to somebody, there's got to be a measure of trust. And you know, this is a very powerful source of communication for us. So we can't win without early educators. Absolutely. Second point is um, why why will this approach work? Well, I suppose the first the starting point for me is um, I think this is Im so important uh, that I think we we probably have to set aside um, uh, some of our our views um, perhaps or, or concerns about um, various things and concentrate on the prize. That is, do we want to win or not? It's as simple as that. And I think. A lot of people in this sector have probably got to the point where they've, I know that many of the people on this call, that, that many of the people that are listening to this, will have been working in this field for, for decades. And they would have seen many of these campaigns come and go, and they would have wondered to themselves, why is this one going to work when others have failed? And why would I put my discretionary effort into something like this when I've got, you know, there's... I'm, I'm already busy, I'm, I'm underpaid, under underrespected, and, uh, you know, this is uh, just another thing that I have to do and why would I bother? Well, I suppose what I'd offer is some degree of optimism about the timing and why this might work now when it hasn't worked before. Sometimes political issues are just, just underneath the surface and, you know, you might have made the argument you know, not so long ago in exactly the same way. And then all of a sudden, a number of things come together to crystallise the moment and it, it, it actually creates a movement for change. I actually think this is one of those moments My, and a whole, for a whole range of reasons. I think COVID revealed a couple of things. One is how essential these services are and two, how precarious they are. 
Then I think the other thing that's really emerged through this is the disrespect that's been paid to early educators through the way in which this system was was turned off and on and um, and off turned off for early educators before other sectors of the economy. And I think just the general lack of understanding or acceptance that this recession had a particular effect on women uh, and there was no and, and a sector which is dominated by women and who may sh- and, and who provide you know in many ways, services and support, which are crucial to the lives of women, uh, was basically not responded to in the the first federal budget where there was an opportunity to respond post-COVID. So there's a lot of pent-up pressure. The arguments have always been impeccable, but sometimes good arguments have to find their time. I suppose the third thing, and this this directly relates to the Mindaroo question, is this. We need a very big set of resources behind a strategic communications campaign to win. Mindaroo Foundation is a $2 billion foundation. And, I mean, people will have their views about Andrew Forrest and, and, and Nicola Forrest, but this this has been a personal passion of both of them for the last 20 years. The first time they set up a philanthropic vehicle was 20 years ago when the Australian Children's Trust, and they've been consistently giving to children's causes for 20 years. They made a lot of money very recently and they put a lot of it into uh, this early learning system. And why did they get me to come in? Well, I was, you know, an ex-politician and uh, I was already volunteering in this sector uh, after I left politics. Then they approached me about this job. And for me, it was sort of like a dream come true, the idea of being paid to actually do something that I was really... Uh, had spent my sort of post-political life volunteering in and an opportunity to return to some of the things we were unable to achieve when we were in, when I was in government. I put this on the COAG agenda, these very questions, but we didn't have a, a powerful campaign, a powerful engine that was able to build a coalition for change beneath it. And now I have the opportunity to, to work with, you know, the, the sector and create broader coalitions to actually cause this change. So if it's, and I, I suppose for those of you who've got doubts about Andrew Forrest and some of his other views, um, I think on this we can agree. And Fiona Stanley has been a trenchant critic of, of, uh, of Andrew Forrest. She's also a Western Australian. Um, she's the really the the figurehead for our campaign. She She actually is leading it. She sent the open letter to the Prime Minister calling for the sort of reforms to the early learning system that we're we're calling for, uh, and she had to grapple with this question, and she decided that the agenda was more important than than her views about um, uh, some of the disputes she'd had in the past with Andrew, and I, I suppose that's where a lot of people have landed. And you know, it's it's a voluntary campaign; people don't have to join it. But I think a lot of people who are serious about winning realise this might be our best chance. I think both of those kind of sound reasonable. What I haven't really got a sense of in your answer there is I've heard you say that you want the early education sector to be part of it. Um, I haven't heard you say, you know, uh, I haven't heard you express an understanding of 
the depth of the division mm. within the early education care sector. I'd yeah. say that you've probably experienced it by now. Yeah. Um, but, you know, there's a lot of different groups with a lot of different agendas. Yeah. Um, the providers certainly wouldn't would be wary of you know a lot of the 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 things that I'm imagining they can eventually get to. Sure. How are you going to you know like how are you going to unite all of those disparate voices? Sure. Well I suppose the first the first I mean there are some not negotiables which which we think any great system should have one is that it, that it has to be universally accessible. I mean, every child that should have the opportunity for uh, for these high quality experiences. Um, the second thing is that it's got to be high quality, and and you can't talk about quality without talking about pay and 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 respect and qualifications and and uh, essentially the you know security of employment for the uh, the early educators uh, the, and, and teachers. So they're non-negotiable and there are some other system design issues that, that, that are necessary, but those two things are, are critical. Now, um, will everybody go on this, this journey with us? I mean, there might be some, there might be some, uh, some providers who, who, um, who don't uh, support the, the provision of this and you know we're not we're not seeking unanimity about this obviously we want a broad enough coalition to to actually cause change but if there are low quality providers or, or people that are making profit at the expense of uh, outcomes for children well you know we might have to there might be some people that we're going to disagree with and I, I think we also can't be afraid of conflict I mean it may be that that we have to put pressure on the political process and because that's how that's how politicians weigh up the equation. There has to be a political penalty for not agreeing with with this sector. And I think if I mean, I suppose um, what we're also I mean, we we've constructed a, a, a campaign which is um, which is which tries to create space in it for as many people as possible. And that the the basic structure is a We've tried to find a, a campaign goal that that as many people as possible can buy into universal, high quality, early learning. Um, we've also tried to construct um, a a process of trying to bring stakeholders together. What I'm doing tonight and all of the town halls we've been doing have been trying to build a common language and a common understanding and a shared experience. Eraci are helping us with that. Eraci over the years has been doing great things and continues to do that by trying to develop a, a common knowledge base about brain their brain building network that they work on and the summits that they've been running. Then in behind the scenes we're also working with key decision makers. So public servants who are you know who are existing public servants uh, as well as key you know, researchers and Contributors have are also being worked on worked with to to try and work out these really complex design questions. How do we get from the system we have to the system we need to need to have? And that that won't be a simple or short process. It's a dialogue that's commencing. So that if we're successful 
and we do create pressure for change. When public servants are asked by their ministers, do we have to do this? They can say, well, minister, we've been we've been doing some thinking and here are some of your options. So we are trying to work in all these dimensions. It's a sophisticated, well-resourced campaign. Um, and we think that um, it has good prospects of success. I'm super excited by the idea of everybody kind of rallying around this this one message and all of those things that are happening. Um, one question I'd ask Jay is, you're not going to recommend another productivity inquiry, are you? <laughs> I, don't th I don't think I'd be sending anything to the Productivity Commission <laughs> because uh, it's the place you send good ideas to die, I think. Well, there have been, there, there has been, and, and Liam and Lisa always love the, that I mention this. There has been one excellent report, which was a workforce report, um, and that was that was fantastic. And I think um, from just hearing the things that you're saying and being able to rally all of those people, is there going to be sort of an unpacking of all of that excellent work that has been done in the past as well? Because there have been some... I mean, we actually have a very good national quality framework. It's just yeah. sometimes the implementation of that can be yeah. problematic. Um, and I, I guess it's it's also, um, I mean, it seems to me that you're reflecting on those those things. Is there going to be a corralling of all the excellent things that have been done in the past that can then be sort of carried forward as well? Yeah, and, and that's what that inside track process is is doing at the moment. It's it's gathering, and there are any number of reports. I mean, right at the moment, the federal government's holding about three or four existing reports that it has an act on. The NAUST report, the Smith Family Report, the Australian mm -hmm. Institute of Family Studies Report. It's got the Productivity Commission reports, had the Mitchell Report. Into, We're not short of reports, are we? There are lots of reports. <laughs> Uh, and there's probably a bunch of others I haven't mentioned in the child protection area and infant maternal health area. So, you know, there's there's so much good thinking that 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 we can lean on uh, to, and I think to some degree, you know, we can all imagine what a great system looks like. I think the real challenge is how we get from where we are now to that system. What the sequence looks like, what happens first, what happens second, and how we take, because there are unintended negative consequences. We've seen, you know, the rapid expansion of early learning opportunities in some jurisdictions which have actually sacrificed quality and we can't go down that path. So, you know, there there, there are traps that it's not it's this is a very this is not simple public policy. Um, and, um, and and there is an enormous amount of expertise. And I think it is worth just you know, reiterating the point that you made is that a lot has been achieved and we can't, I mean, 10 years ago when we were working on the national quality standards and I was I was an education minister at the time sitting around the table with uh, with Julia Gillard and, and you know, that was that was an extraordinary step forward. You know, the when the rescuing after the collapse of ABC Learning, the creation of Good Start, um, you know, a lot of, lot of important things have, have happened, but it's not enough and we're well below where we need to be in terms yeah. of um, our early childhood development system. Yeah, absolutely. Jay, is that what happened when the NDIS was being argued for and formed? Didn't Wasn't that campaign just about the existence of an insurance system not or an insurance scheme, not about what it would look like? And I'm not well, suggesting that we should go down the NDIS route, given no. that 
you know, but we're still better off having the NDIS and not having the NDIS. Couldn't we just argue for a universal access system without also saying, and this is what it would look like? Well, I, I think... Uh... I think, in a way, that's almost exactly what we are doing. So the the I think the the genius of the NDIS campaign was they managed to get unanimity of purpose from a whole range of disparate disability groups around a single campaign arts. So many voices, one message. And I can look, I was a disability minister in two thousand and four, and I can tell you if you if you had said, that we would have ended up with a national disability insurance scheme that would have doubled the funding going to the disability sector, I would have laughed because we were always, you know, down the end of the table in the cabinet room. Disability ministers were not, it didn't seem like um, number one priority for any government, let alone the Commonwealth. And it was an effective campaign that actually mobilised uh, the community which caused it. Now, um, I think what probably what it probably would have benefited from is some of this inside track work that we are now proposing as part of our campaign, um, because I think that the implementation of the NDIS has proven to be a little more complex than probably people who won the initial argument had imagined. But there's no doubt it's a massive net improvement for people with disabilities. There's still a bit of work to be done in 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 the implementation phase. But so we're hoping. Because you know, ultimately, when you, when these are, when politicians are having to grapple with this, they're going to have to, at some stage, grapple with the details, and and in some ways, this is much more complex than NDIS, because you know that's essentially a voucher system which makes, which is available for everybody with a disability. What we're talking about is harmonising a, an uncapped demand-driven Commonwealth system of childcare, which is really a an incident of employment policy and trying to incorporate it into a system of early childhood development, which doesn't exist at the moment at state level. What you, I mean, the infant and maternal system doesn't speak neatly to the childcare system, which doesn't speak neatly to the preschool system, uh, and, and certainly doesn't integrate well with child protection and family and community services. So this is, you know, very complex public policy. So I think that has to go on in the background uh, while we we put, you know, we while we have this much more powerful sort of uh, cut through campaign goal. Okay, there's two things that um, that Thrive by Five did quite early on that mm. I saw raised the hackles of some in the sector. Mm. Um, the first was a meme that was put out which I'm, I'm sorry, I can't even remember its exact words, but it was something that I know its intent was to say not every child gets access to quality education and care. Yeah. But that was read by some in the sector as saying that the sector as a whole didn't provide quality education and care. Yeah. Were you aware of that meme? Were you aware of the backlash to that meme? Yeah. Yeah, and it, look, it's a real dilemma because any strategic communication campaign has to start with a why. Why are we doing this? And it's got to be a powerful why. Like, there has to be a burning platform. It's got to be a problem. Politicians don't solve problems that don't exist, that will, you know, they've got lots of problems that do exist they're going to have to solve. So we, and this is where 
this is where the sector, I think, this is where we have to have some, you know, quite difficult conversations with the sector is that to win our argument, we've got to, uh, we, we've got to navigate some of those communication challenges. So, um, I mean, the truth is 18% of the sector, the childcare centres or early learning settings don't meet quality standards. Um, now, that that's not to say that there aren't some wonderful things going on in the overwhelming majority of the sector. And it's, it's hard for a sector which is already disrespected and underpaid to hear criticism of it and not read that as as, as people being devalued. But the, the, the aim is to create the platform for change. The the and, and in fact the first part of the campaign actually always has to begin with the problem because you can't we we, we cannot win this argument unless we have a problem solution narrative. What we what a lot of campaigns tend to lead with is the solution. And you know for I mean if you ask most politicians they'll say, oh well, it's nothing really. I mean what's wrong with the, the childcare system? Eighty percent of kids are going okay, you know, that's pretty good. What are we worried about? I mean, that's, you know, we've got a lot of work to do to persuade the political process that there's actually a problem that's got to be solved. So I, and and so to some degree, it's a question of trust and buy-in. If the sector understands, that's why I spend all my time trying to explain the campaign, because I, if people understand why we're doing this and what we're doing and are buying into it, then you know, then then they'll they'll hear these things and understand that this is a sequence. So at the first sequence in the strategic communications campaign is to define the problem. As we start to see, um, you know, as we start to change community attitudes, we can then move to the other elements of the campaign. So uh, it, it's 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 a bit like when I when we use the phrase childcare, which also drives. Uh, yeah, that was the other one I was going to yeah. talk about. I mean, that, that also drives people crazy because they say, well, it's not childcare, it's it's not child money, it's it's about it's so much more profound. It's the system of early learning or or early education that that we're actually we need and we can't keep um, we can't keep using you know that language and which is the language of almost the economy and, and what we're doing to actually advance workforce participation and that's true that's our goal but we have to start where people are at i mean strategic communications is not about making us feel better it's about trying to move the great bulk of the community on a journey from you know basically where where they're at and create a bridge for them to walk across to where we want them to go. And so that doesn't mean us starting at our destination because we'll alienate people. We won't, that those people will not um, be able to, to understand. So Jay, a lot of the things that you are saying or really everything that you're saying, many um, educators and people who are operating um, early childhood education services will say, yep, I am 100% in agreement with you. I absolutely know all of this evidence and I'm convinced. What is it that you would like me to do, Jay Weatherall, in terms of my, you know, I'm not talking about me personally, but I'm talking about yeah. that's what educators and and um, and operators of services are saying. What What is it that you would like them to do to get on board with the campaign? 
go to the campaign website, thrivebyfive.org.au and register. So that's the first thing. Uh, and by registering that you'll get updates and there'll be a sort of supported journey. If you nominate yourself as an educator, that, that will take you in a certain place as a parent, another place. So that's the first first thing, go in and register and then see what the campaign is sort of doing and, and that will give you updates about where things are going. The second thing is speak to parents, speak to people in your service and get them to join the campaign because that will also take them on a supported journey which is tailored for them. Um, and, you know, if we're able to be bring tens of that. And this is essentially what happened with the National Disability Insurance Scheme campaign. That was a largely a web-based um, campaign. As we are able to build out that platform, we start to get a critical mass in, in crucial seats that can influence the political process. The other thing is that for people that are highly motivated, the people that are able to actually, that are prepared to speak publicly about these questions, um, I mean, we'd love to know anyone that wants to raise their voice and, and be part of the campaign and speak publicly. So we've got some great, powerful advocates at the moment. Lisa is always out there communicating publicly. We've got, you know, Georgie Dent is out there. Fiona Stanley is an extraordinary communicator. So we've got great voices. Um, we've got a number of people in the women's movement. Um, Sam Moston, from, who's now the new president of Chief Executive Women, and we've had a range of people from across the political spectrum that have also raised their voices, but people that are comfortable on radio, on television, um, uh, people that might want to write things and give opinion pieces, we're really, well, we really want people that are prepared to step up in that way. But small or large, any contribution to the campaign, uh, not financial, but just really your, your time and your effort is, is what's needed. Can I just add into that, um, Jay, people's stories, educators hold the stories that we need Absolutely. to make this real for, for, you know, for everybody. If you think about the stories you heard um, when the NDIS was, you know, uh, didn't exist, when, you know, we heard about people with horrendous disabilities not getting the support they need or people living in you know, young people with disabilities living in um, old people's homes because that was the only option. Those exactly. stories really matter. If we get the stories from educators and from services about the turnarounds that you've done in children's lives through Absolutely. provision of your service, if you get the stories of the families that have had to drop out because they couldn't mm -hmm. afford it, Absolutely. if we get the stories you know, that give this some degree of colour, that's what we need. Absolutely. And, this, the, you know, the families that joined during that brief period of free uh, that had never been into a service before, um, there, are just, there are just so many extraordinary stories about the differences that... And, it's, and of course, the, you know, the system we imagine is, is not just about... It's, it's crucially about children, but it's also about parents... And, you know, this is a dual generational sort of idea we're talking about here. I mean, so many, you know, these early educators, they're not just they're not just teaching children. They're also, in a way, teaching parents. I mean, they're just such a crucial uh, community resource that, that um, 
And I think as more as people understand what actually goes on in these places, they understand how valuable they are and, and how much how important they would be to to invest in. Yeah, one of the challenges, I mean, you mentioned before about parents being time poor, but one mm. of the challenges is that they're actually not in the system as such for many years, whereas they're in the yeah. school system often, you know, if they have a, two children or even three or even yeah. one, they're there for at least 13 years. But at the early childhood um, education system, they're not there for that long. And so I think um, this yeah. broadening of the campaign is really obviously the key to, to it. Yeah, you're, you're right. I mean, you look at, um, I think, just in Chile, Carolina, only 11% of families uh, sort of uh, across the nation use at any one point in time are in the childcare system. So it's not, but it, it does touch the lives of, of um, you know, it has an ongoing impact on the lives of, of, um, of families. And I think also teachers are important here in the school-based uh, system. So... You know, you ask any primary school teacher, and they'll they'll tell you that, you know, the 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 way a child works walks through that school gate on the first day is massive, massively important sort of indicator of what of what their trajectory is going to be. So, they have a real interest in what happens in the five years before they walk through that school gate, and you know they can become that. That's another alliance for it. So, I mean, you remember all this talk about Gonski and trying to deal with inequalities in schools. Well, the big answer for inequality in school is what happens before they come to school. It's one of the great, it's one of the things that was missed, I think, in that whole analysis. The answer for what happens in school doesn't entirely reside inside the school system. It, it, it very much is influenced by what happens before they arrive. That's so true. Well, I think that's probably not a bad spot to end, Jay. I think we've uh, been very much appreciated you sort of engaging with the complexity of this discussion. I think, you know, all of us know that the the early education sector is uh, incredibly complex. I think we've, we often refer back to Kate Ellis's uh, description of it as unscrambling the egg in, in some way. Uh, mm -hmm. So, you know, it's always great to see new people sort of come in and take on that challenge. We'll obviously be following, you know, Thrive by Five, with interest, we'll definitely link to the website and, and some of the other resources available there. But um, I know that you, uh, as you sort of said, you're conducting a lot of, uh, in this sort of COVID age, a lot of online town halls and a lot of online yeah. webinars. So there's a lot of opportunities to find out more about Thrive by Five at the moment. But we very much appreciate you uh, devoting some time to talk with us tonight on the Early Education Show. Thank you, Liam. And uh, wonderful to, to chat with you. And please don't regard it as our campaign, regard it as your campaign. And it's the only way it's going to be successful. You have been listening to The Early Education Show. You can find show notes and links for this episode and all our other episodes at earlyeducationshow.com. The show is hosted by Lisa Bryant, Leanne Gibbs and Liam McNicholas and produced by Liam McNicholas. The music is by Jazar at betterwithmusic.com. Please subscribe, rate and review the show in the Apple Podcast Store. It really helps others find the show. Get in touch with us at Early Edu Show on Facebook and Twitter or send us an email at earlyedushow at gmail.com. See you next time.